Welcome, everyone, to the very first episode of Living on a Changing Planet. Before we get in to the real content, I want to do a quick 30-second introduction and then spend a couple of minutes speaking about the podcast. What is it, and why do I think that you should listen to it? My name is Carter Powis. I'm a climate scientist and economist from the soon-to-be tropical paradise of Toronto, Canada. I'm currently splitting my time between academia and industry. As an academic, I do research at the University of Oxford, where I think about questions like, what will continued climate change mean for the hottest places on the planet? How will the climate system respond if we start taking greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere? And can we use information about our climate to make better economic decisions? If you're curious, the answers are, they get hotter, the planet will cool down, and and yes, we can. When working in industry, I partner with companies and other organizations to help them think about what climate change means for them and how they can develop better strategies for responding to it. As I'm sure you can imagine, all of this makes me just super fun to be around at parties. (laughs) Now, that's a bit of a joke, but parties are actually part of the reason why I decided I wanted to do this podcast. So I started working as a climate scientist in 2018. And very shortly thereafter, I started to notice this strange phenomenon, particularly in situations where I was meeting new people. I would introduce myself and explain what it is that I do. And within 10 minutes, I would always find myself in the same conversation, which was, could you please tell me how bad are things going to get? Is it too late? Are we doomed? But always asked in a way that made it very clear to me that the person asking didn't want me to know that they cared about the answer. And the more that this happened, the more I started to develop a hypothesis that not only are a lot more people concerned about climate change than I originally thought. But there's also a very strong social stigma to admitting that you're upset by climate change or that climate change scares you. And so my very impressively credentialed co-host and I decided one way we could help people have better conversations about climate change would be to put together a podcast where we sit down with truly world-leading experts and ask them simple questions like, how do you feel about climate change? Why do you feel that way? How do those feelings affect your day-to-day life? And what do you do to manage those feelings effectively? It's our hope that through this podcast, by making these conversations accessible to anyone, we can help provide you with the tools that you need to have better conversations about climate change in your own lives. And to be very clear, I don't just mean people who are concerned about climate change because they've read and understood the science and they're afraid of what the future holds for them and and those they love. I also mean for people who think that we are collectively overreacting to climate change and who are afraid that their livelihoods may be negatively affected as a result. Both of those groups have legitimate reasons to worry about the future, 
and this podcast does not discriminate between the two of them. Now, there are two other reasons that I think you should also listen to this podcast. The first is, I don't think that we're really well prepared to deal with problems that are not completely within our own locus of control, that we don't have full agency over. I'm not sure that's something we're ever taught, or at least I wasn't. And the reality is, life is just full of problems that you do not have total agency over. Climate change, for many people, being one of them. Throughout this podcast, my hope is you will also find some tools for engaging more productively with the problems in your life that you don't have full agency over. And that doesn't just mean climate change. It can be any problem that shares those same characteristics. And lastly, I think the layman really has no idea what the science actually says about climate change. How big of a threat is it? How near of a threat is it? What are the specific things that we should be worrying about? And what are the things that we should not be worrying about? And I think there's a couple of reasons for this. By and large, with some notable exceptions, the climate science community has not done a good job at communicating its science to the average person. Also, the ongoing war for the attention of your everyday consumer means that news outlets and other organizations that help spread or communicate science uh, have faced pressures to hyperbolize or to present in the most extreme way possible whatever they publish in order to try and draw views away from their competitors. And this includes the communication of climate science. And lastly, there are some bad actors out there who are spending large sums of money to create and spread climate misinformation in order to protect their interests, which are to continue consuming or producing fossil fuels in a way that is extremely profitable for them. So my final hope for this podcast is that throughout these episodes, and particularly in the second last episode, we will be able to give you a clear, simple, and accurate view of what the science actually says about climate change. Now, with all that said, I think it is finally time to introduce you to my wonderful co-host. He has asked me to not use his full title during the production of these episodes. So without further ado, I will just introduce him simply as the inestimable <laughs> Dr. Patrick <laughs> Kennedy Williams D. Oxon. Pat. <laughs> how do I follow that? Pat, how are you? Carter, thank you so much for the, the flagrant over-introduction uh, for the first and hopefully last time on this, uh, on this series. This podcast was a no-brainer for me. And I just am relishing the opportunity to take a subject like climate science and the climate crisis and start an emotion-focused and human conversation about it. So I'm a clinical psychologist by background. Uh, increasingly over time, I began to work more and more in the climate space uh, and then, then founded uh, an organization called Climate Psychologists several years ago. 
And so now this is really the focus of my, of my work. As a psychologist, I generally believe that everything is psychological in our lives, but particularly the climate crisis. And what's been wonderful these past few years is that the climate science community and the psychology community are sort of coming together to realize this. It's been said, you know, that climate change has a bit of an image problem uh, in the sense that it's often been portrayed as distant, overly academic, quite dense, uh, and a problem for future generations rather than the here and now. And often it's being presented, or it hasn't been presented rather, as a problem involving people and humanity. Uh, and so the concept behind living on a changing planet I love so much, which is about humanizing or rehumanizing, you could say, an overly academic problem. And that leads me nicely to introduce our guest today, Joe Duggan. So Joe is a science communicator and a creator of an incredible project called Is This How You Feel? When in between 2014 and 2016, he invited climate scientists around the world to send him these beautiful handwritten letters, beautifully written personal letters expressing how they feel about climate change. Joe, one thing I love that you say on your website is, I want to show that these scientists aren't just nameless, faceless boffins. <laughs> They're real people. And my understanding of this project is that you've asked people to speak in a different way, and quite bravely as well, I'd say, in terms of how they're feeling about the climate crisis. Uh, and this is literally the whole premise to our podcast. So you're the perfect first guest. So with all this in mind, I'm absolutely thrilled to introduce our fledgling, our first guest of the season, Joe Duggan. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I, I've said this many times to the various people that, that choose to go down this path. I think it's more than just a, a single person or a single idea that's going to help push this, this concept or this approach along. Um, so the more people that get involved, the better, and the more that everyone can learn from each other, the better. So it's fantastic to see the, the two of you doing this podcast. Well, that's about the nicest possible reaction we could have hoped for, given we uh, kind of shamelessly stole your entire idea. Uh, why don't we start with the obvious question? How did you come up with the idea for Is This How You Feel? So the, the concept for Is This How You Feel, um, it, it started in this sort of, this, this mire of, of want to do something, but, but not sure what, what it was that I could do that was going to have a have a meaningful impact on how people understood climate change. Now, the real impetus was it um, for it was that I just watched a documentary in inverted commas uh, called The Great Climate Swindle, which was at the time around 2013, 2014, was essentially a um, denier's rebuttal to Al Gore's inconvenient truth. You know, the, the huge seminal piece of work that really started the, the, the popular conversation around climate change, if you will. and. Uh, viewing that documentary, The Great Climate Swindle, through the eyes of a communicator and you know, a fledgling one, I was watching these people break all the rules in, in good, honest communication. You know, there was the, those uh, quintessential approaches that you see more and more of, of cherry-picking data, misrepresenting facts, um, focusing on, on something that may not be a statistically significant phenomenon or something that's been rebutted years, if not decades, in the past. But all this information was being put to the fore and, and being used to essentially negate um, what were cold, hard facts. And I was incensed. When I saw it, I was, I was truly livid. 
And I was like, this isn't fair. This is, this is bullshit. We should be able to, we need to try and fight this sort of communication differently. Um, and I found myself in a space where I was just like, I was trying to identify what that approach could be and what is going to be an, a, a, an effective and an ethical approach to communicating climate change differently. Um, and, and that idea, it started with, you know, well, look at, look at groups from the far left. You've got uh, Greenpeace, World Wildlife Fund, Sea Shepherd, groups that are really great at getting in front of a camera and really great at getting media attention. Um, but once they do get in front of that camera, there are times where the spokespeople aren't conveying the message as effectively as they could. Um, something that happened around a similar time was that uh, three Australians had got onto a Japanese whaling ship in the Southern Ocean, um, and that garnered a whole heap of attention in the news. And then these people went to speak about their cause, and it just fell really flat. They just they just couldn't articulate um, why they'd done what they'd done, uh, uh, nor could they articulate uh, any of the, the the greater issues surrounding it. And so all those things were happening in my head. And I was like, well, scientists, they, they get the facts. And if, if anything, they should be able to articulate the ones and zeros in an appropriate way. So why can't we get the scientists to do things like climb to the top of Big Ben, go to the go, top of the Golden Gate Bridge and unfurl a banner that says we're all doomed or something equally, um, equally extreme to get attention. And then when the camera's on them, say what they need to say. That was the original plan, you know, and, and throughout time I started to realise there are a whole bunch of fundamental reasons why that probably wasn't a great idea. Um, Polarise people in the same way that groups on either side of politics tend to do on, on the fringes. Uh, and and it's, you, you can alienate your audience, of course, if you go in heavy-handed and in a ham-fisted way. Um, and so that was just one example of, of the extreme beginning of the ideas and eventually through a bit of introspection, I realised that it wasn't about necessarily trying to get more people to listen. It was about trying to just fundamentally communicate differently and make the problem more relatable. And if you go back to the, the fundamentals or the first principles of science communication more broadly, you know, a huge thing is make the problem relatable or make whatever it is you're trying to convey relatable to your audience. Relevance is key. Um, and so from there, I, uh, I started approaching scientists within my immediate network. I was based at Australian National University at the time and um, started to chat to climate scientists as a, a naive young communicator at the time, someone that hadn't, didn't have uh, a proven track record and pitched them this idea of, of handwritten letters just reflecting on how climate change makes them feel, not on the, the um, statistical significance of their findings or the latest uh, information that's coming out in an IPCC report, simply to reflect on their own personal feelings about climate change. And how did these scientists respond when you reached out to them? I have to imagine, speaking as a scientist myself, that some of them were pretty unenthused with the idea. Uh, not only because people who study the physical sciences are often not the most touchy-feely people on the planet, but also because scientists often go to great lengths to keep emotion and their work separate so that they can remain unbiased and uh, impartial. Totally. There was probably two, two um, large schools of thoughts in terms of responses. There were a group of scientists that, and I will say rightfully so, turned around and said, well, no, my science needs to be impartial. You know, and, and that is completely true and valid. The scientific method, the scientific process relies on impartiality and the ability to 
be clinical, be precise, and make experiments and analysis replicable so that you can further collective understanding of a field. That makes sense. Um, and I feel that there were scientists that would look at what I was asking them to do and say, no, I don't want to, because there is a risk that I could undermine my unbiased nature or the perceived impartiality of the work that I'm doing. Um, and that's completely fine. And, and what, I, what I wanted to do was not to force people to communicate in a way that they didn't want to, invite the ones that did want to communicate that way. Brings you to the other group of, of researchers that I approached that were shocked, first of all. No one had asked them this before. Certainly at this time, in, in mid to late 2014, for a whole heap of these researchers, they were, they were pleased at the opportunity and I think some of them thankful for the opportunity to be given a platform and a, I'd like to say a safe space, but that's debatable depending on you know, how you, you see that content once, once it's put out into the world, but at least with the creation of the, the letters, a safe space for them to reflect and and contemplate how they felt. And as the letters grow, grew, the cool thing was this became a an unexpected um, outcome, an unexpected benefit from the project. Uh, I was here trying to reach the general public, whoever that is, or at least the uh, uh, engaged but apathetic section of the public. Um, and unbeknownst to me, I was also having an impact or the project was also having an impact on researchers that were realising they weren't alone and they were allowed to talk about this stuff and there were other people going through the same things that they were. And I think to, to some extent there was an element of um, that could be galvanising for those researchers and it could give them resolve. These are eminent scientists who contributed to your project and there's, there's something wonderful about hearing people at that stage of their career, with that much experience and knowledge, now starting to have these, you know, powerful human conversations, normalizing it for the next generation. And not just for the next generation. I think part of the enormous value of this project is the average person has zero opportunity to sit down with a climate scientist and ask them questions like, what are you worried about? I mean, there's not that many of us to, to go around. Um, so I think what we should do now is skip to the question that I'm sure everyone is just waiting for us to ask, which is, what did these letters say? The very first letter I got back, um, I, I reached out to a whole range of Australian researchers and academics are extremely busy people, as are so many of us. And so there was a fair lag before I started to get any content back. Um, the first letter I got back came from a, a woman that studies at the University of New South Wales here in Australia. Her name's Professor Katrin Meisner. And when I got that first letter, I realised that there was merit in this idea. And, and that was really the, the point at which I was like, oh, this is worth pushing and seeing what happens. Because Katrin, who is the director of the, the Climate Change Research Centre at UNSW, that's a, it's a high-profile role, it's an important role and a powerful role, and, and she was almost poetic in her response. She had this aesthetically gorgeous yellow legal pad with, like, ripped edges that she'd just torn off from her desk and this beautiful cursive writing and she's speaking about how she's fearful for the future because she feels like she's on a boat on a river going towards a waterfall and no one realizes that they're about to go over the edge uh, and so a researcher that's so used to speaking um, 
analytically and with statistics and data, all of a sudden, given the platform to reflect on how they're feeling, was pouring emotion out. Um, and, and that sort of continued. Certainly there was, it was a spectrum and there were people that were um, more or less expressive, but also you would, you would have people that were hopeful, people that were scared and sad. And I think that was a really, just in our social constructs that we have, showing fear or, or weakness in inverted commas is, is a really a negative thing in a, in a whole bunch of cultures. And so for these researchers to not only be communicating in a way that they're not normally expected to, but then to be showing that sort of emotion, I thought was a really powerful thing. Um, and then, then there were some that people were throwing their hands up in the air. And, and again, excuse my language, essentially saying we're fucked. We're fucked and I have to go to work every single day knowing that we're fucked. And I, I've known this for years and I'm trying desperately to tell someone about this through the channels that I have and nothing's changing. I don't care who you are. If that's what your job is, regardless of what it looks like on the outside, that's got to be harrowing. Uh, and then, and then the, the ones that were angry. There was a, a gentleman called Corey Bradshaw um, and uh, he's in, in South Australia, in Australia again, and he was livid. And I'd never seen a, a, an academic let fly in the way that... Um, the Corey did, and again, these were really early on in the in the um, in the life of the project. There's this huge breadth of emotions, and and a huge um, number of analogies and examples of how it affects their life that were coming through, which I think is is a key part of the project as well, because that's a, a real uh, connection or a conduit to to reach other people. I also found Corey Bradshaw's letter to be just really striking. For our listeners who haven't had a chance to explore the letters, I'll read my favorite paragraph. He says, my frustration with these greedy, lying bastards is personal. Human-caused climate disruption is not a belief. It is one of the best studied phenomena on earth. Even a half-wit can understand this. As any father would, Anyone threatening my family will be on the receiving end of my ire and vengeance. This anger is the manifestation of my deep love for my daughter and the sadness I feel in my core about how others are treating her future. Now, I know that that's difficult to follow up. But Joe, I have to ask, how did you feel reading these letters? I ask because I still find myself calibrating how I feel by looking to more senior climate scientists and checking how they're reacting to, say, a new discovery. And I think this is something that a lot of people do. They, When they're faced with something they don't understand, they look to the experts to try and inform how they should feel about it. It's the same thing as when you're on an airplane and you go through some bad turbulence and you look at the flight attendant just to make sure that they're still smiling. And as long as they're still smiling, you know that everything's going to be okay. I have to imagine it must have been pretty shocking to get these letters back and to have figuratively seen the flight attendants expressing anger and despair and sadness. 
Yes, certainly. I think um, I think for, for for chunks of the of the population, the, the global population, they'll look to um, researchers for the, the indication in how they should behave or how should, they should react. But I don't think that's across the board, right? I think there are a whole heap, which is part of the reason we're in the in the place we are, is that that, that um, researchers often aren't looked with looked at with any respect or trust. Um, but but you are right. Like for for someone, let's say, I would presume in your position that is has experience in the field, and someone uh, like myself, who again upper middle class white male that's gone through a quite a thorough education system and has been sort of indoctrinated into that way of thinking, to see the experts start to be worried and scared for for me was huge, huge um, because it's it's. There's a whole bunch of reasons that this project um, may not have worked and and probably didn't have the impact that it could have. And and one of those is that there's a whole school of research, at least in science communication, that looks at the fact that fear won't change emotions and fear won't change lead to to actions. Um, and and so seeing that fear from the researchers, in one sense, it it paralysed me a little bit. Um, but, but in the other sense, it, again, it galvanized me. It made me go, well, no, okay, this is, these people can't do it by themselves. You know, their role is essentially to explore the world, explore scientific phenomena and communicate it to other researchers. Yes, in some respect, they then should go on or where they can communicate it to a broader audience. But then it comes down to people like myself and people like you two gentlemen to take that next step and, make it palatable and consumable for other people. I really want to hear about the five-year project now, or at least the five-year follow-up to the project, for all kinds of reasons, not least because of the, well, the change in public awareness and, and global understanding right, of the climate crisis over the past half decade and how it's kind of moved into this, you know, into the Overton window, the kind of window of acceptable public discourse um, more and more people are talking about it. More and more people are accepting of and aware of the fact that we're facing a, a, a global public health emergency. And the optimist in me can't help but think that this awareness must have brought about some sort of positive change in terms of uh, how people relate to the climate crisis on an emotional level. But in these original people, these original climate scientists that you interview between 2014 and 2016 and then re-interviewed five years later, is there a greater sense of hope for these people in that intervening time or, or urgency or perhaps even both or more? And really quickly, Joe, before you answer, I'm going to rudely interrupt because I have a prediction. My prediction is that you have seen a cautious increase in optimism. And I say that because not only have I personally become more cautiously optimistic, but I've noticed a similar trend amongst my peers. And I think there's really good reason for this. 2016 was a particularly bad year for climate. It was the year that the United States announced its intention to withdraw from the Paris Agreement, which, if our listeners are not familiar, is the UN agreement to take action on climate change. And it was also the hottest year in recorded human history. And as of the recording of this episode, it is still the hottest year in recorded human history. Although, if there's anyone out there who would like to lose some money, I would be really happy to place a bet 
on the fact that that will no longer be true at some point in the next two to five years. Since 2016, a couple of really important things have happened. There's been huge climate legislation passed in the EU and in the United States, as well as a couple of other countries. The appetite for corporate leaders to take action on climate change has exploded, and the deployment numbers for renewable energy and electric vehicles continue to exceed forecasts year over year. So there's a couple of important reasons for cautious optimism that just didn't exist as recently as five or six years ago. That's, that's really interesting that, that y- your perception has, has clearly um, improved over time. But <laughs> because of your view of, of how the world's changing, now, I, I have a suspicion that, that some people might have incorporated more optimism into how they're feeling because they see the power of their role as a communicator um, and that we come back to the fact that in, in often, in many cases, fear can be paralysing. People uh, are worried that being too negative can lead to, to a lack of, of action. To come back to the, to come back to, I will come back to that, but to come back to that, that first point of why did I start this again? Um, I, I was cooked. Like I, I did, I did this project in 2014 and it went bang when I wasn't, I wasn't expecting it to go bang. And I was just a, a naive young communicator with stars in their eyes that wanted to change the world. And then, and then, but, but you know, people started listening and then I was like, oh shit, I better keep going. Like I, I can't take my foot off the pedal now because I didn't expect this to go anywhere. And it has. Um, and, and for me that highlighted a few of my flaws. I wasn't great at um, sharing the load and, and I was trying to do everything myself. And, and it meant that over three or four years of, of interviews in the States at ridiculous hours, I must say the hour of this interview is fantastic compared to the 4am's and the 3am's of some of the things that I was doing at the start. Um, but, but also, you know, corresponding with 50, 60, 70, 80, 100 researchers from around the world and, and just trying to do that yourself whilst doing a full-time job um, and, and just living your life and having any time for yourself. I was cooked. I was burnt out and I was completely disenfranchised is the, is the wrong, oh, it's actually it's probably the right term. I am, um, as part of my, one of my roles, I, I sometimes give lectures or, or talks at universities and, and you could probably track the bi-yearly talks that I did over time by the more, um, the, the greater the amount of not disdain, but but like I, I, you could tell that I was burnt out when I was talking to these first years or second years about climate communication. And they ask, oh, you know, are you proud of what you did? And I would say, no, no, I'm not, because it didn't change the world. You know, and, and I, there, was, there was a time there in 2017, 2018, 2019, around that time where I was like, yep, I gave it all I got and that wasn't the answer. And so we're done. We're done and there's nothing we can do. I have to interrupt um, you there. I think it's a, it's a, huge injustice that you come to the end of a project like that and feel um you struggle to feel proud in what you've done and what you've achieved when um I don't think that's fair at all but also I've I've heard what you've just described so many times in you know the interactions I've had with people in the climate space right where they feel nothing they can achieve on a personal level or you know is 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 essentially good enough you know where climate conscious people 
end up taking on more work on top of what they're already doing, which might even be uh, climate related or sustainability related in the first place. And use that word burnout, you know, absolutely. They, there's a, a real risk of kind of uh, climate fatigue here. People have this sense of like, I got to the end of this project, you know, I've done all this work and I still haven't changed the world. Uh, and it's unfair, you know, it's unfair on these people that they're doing everything they can and still come away with these kind of appraisals of what they do. And I'm fully aware of the fact that I'm probably going to have at some point a pretty similar realization. In fact, I have over the past year, you know, of like, actually, am I, is my impact real? Am I doing enough here? Uh, am I focusing on the right projects? Am I, you know, all this kind of stuff. And I, yeah, I look out the window and I think, well, it's, you know, the climate crisis is marching on, you know, what difference is any of yeah. this making? Um, yeah. Climate fatigue is real, right? And the the, to- the terms been getting coined and, and getting used more and more, and because I think it is a real thing. Um, and as cl- cliched as it is, I in oh, I better get the dates right. I, I realized I was I have a son. My son is now one year old. One just about to the day a year old, um, and which means around a year and six months ago when we could tell the world that we were expecting a child, um, I started to think too deeply about um, what sort of father I wanted to be, what sort of parent I wanted to be more than just a father. Um, and I thought a lot about what we touched on in terms of scientists 30, 40, 50 years ago versus scientists today stepping into the field and, and their motivations. I felt like my son was going to be growing up in a world where from the get-go he is aware of this huge and ominous problem that he had nothing to do with. And and he's going to be lumped with the responsibility to either try and address the issue or the challenges of living in a world where no one tried to address the issue. And and that was part of the motivation. But the, the killer for me was an idea that my son would grow into a man and grow into an adult and look back at me and say, why didn't you do more? Again, I'm, I'm in this completely privileged position. I, I am, I am the, 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 the rich white majority. You know, I, I am, I am in a position where I've got time and flexibility and the, the availability of resources to be able to do something about this problem. I'm no Jeff Bezos, but oh my God, I am not. I am, you know, I'm not. I, I am not struggling to to live day to day. I have spare resources, spare time, spare energy, and and I couldn't bear looking back on this time and feeling like I didn't do more. So that was the impetus for the five, the, the return at least, the return to the idea of is this how you feel? And then, and then from there, I um I thought well. Five years has gone by. I wonder how these researchers feel. And you asked earlier, what were what was the change? To understand the change, I think you look back at the breadth of, of letters that were written at the start, and you maybe look at the breakdown by geographic distribution. And I think that, again, anecdotally, I think a lot of the researchers from the Northern Hemisphere showed hope. Now, whether that meant that they truly felt hope I, I don't know. We, we, we really need to talk to them. But I feel like whilst they'd been exploring climate change just as much as researchers from the Southern Hemisphere, 
maybe they'd been asked about their feelings a little bit more, or maybe they'd understood the power of their position um, or had more time to comprehend that. And they understood the importance of showing hope and showing an option. Whereas I feel like uh, a lot of the researchers that I pro- approached in the Southern Hemisphere, it was the first time they'd been asked about it and, and their emotional responses were quite raw. Over time, it's almost levelled out. Um, now coming back to a bunch of these researchers in, in five years' time, you've got, you've got the full gamut of responses. Some people are like, I'm, I showed resolve at the start, I've still got resolve, I have to keep going. And, and the beautiful, beautiful thing is my motivation for starting it again was, was having a child. And some of these young researchers that I'd approached, their families were growing. Their lives were fundamentally changing or had fundamentally changed over that five-year period. And all of a sudden, they had a whole bunch of other reasons to keep fighting and keep caring. Um, there, were, there were researchers that had passed away. So researchers that had spent their life trying to get this message across and, and had passed away before any feasible change had taken place Um, and speaking to their children or their grandchildren about how they may have felt or how those individuals felt that were left behind. Um, And that was some really, really powerful stuff. Yeah, I remember one of the letters, the name escapes me now, sadly, where the original um, letter writer had passed away and it was their daughter, right, who had uh, contributed to the second phase and it was all about what she thought or felt he would be saying you know in this after these after this five-year period yeah so there were the two researchers that had passed away there was michael ropak and tony mcmichael um, and both their daughters coincidentally both called anna um, contributed letters and and also really really interestingly both both these annas are artists of one of, of one form or another um, one's a visual artist and one's a classical musician. And the ways that they're exploring climate change, particularly Anna McMichael, um, with music is is phenomenal right now and a real another really interesting tangent to this entire idea of communication. This sparks an idea which I think is going to take us a little bit off track, but bear with me. I was having a conversation recently with a gentleman by the name of Spencer Glendon. And we're going to interview him later in this series because he is the single most insightful person I've ever spoken to on the topic of climate change. And we were discussing why it seems like often those who have the most ability to do something about climate change are least willing to take action. And one of his hypotheses is that collectively as humans, our ability to imagine something is informed by our experience. So when we're presented with science that says the future is going to be increasingly full of disasters, which is going to make life a lot more difficult than it currently is, our ability to internalize what that's going to mean or what's that going to feel like for us is limited by what our personal experience, uh, our lived experience of disasters have been. And because the last 30 to 50 years in the West have been just an unprecedented period of peace and prosperity, the worst thing that most people can imagine is September 11th or the 2008 financial crisis or now that we have COVID, COVID. But we're missing those generational traumas like the First or Second World War 
or the mass famines that were so common throughout human history. And so it's his position, and I agree, that there's a really important role for artists like Anna who are using visual art or music or literature or film to try and make the consequences of climate change more concrete, to to make them feel more real. The past 30 years have been bliss. Yeah, yeah, the, the past 30 past 30 years for us literally have been one of the, the quietest times in terms of uh, global history for for us, again, for uh, acknowledging the fact that it's three white guys talking right now. The world's been sweet as for us, right? Um, and and we don't have that shared trauma. And maybe, maybe COVID's going to change that. I, I'm, I'm not sure. But I, but I think the, the fact that because we haven't had that, right, let's say we, we haven't, we, at, at the time when this started, we hadn't had a shared trauma, so we couldn't connect through, through that shared hardship. That's why these letters, or one of the reasons these letters are powerful, because the, the researchers are talking about hope, anxiety, fear, optimism, things that people, other people do feel. And I've said it before, you know, maybe the, the, your everyday person is feeling this about a job interview or putting food on the table for their kids. They're not thinking about the, the fate of the planet when they're feeling this way, but they are having these emotions. And then all of a sudden you've got some sort of common ground to be able to start the, start the conversation. Joe, one of the things that we want to do in, throughout this podcast series is to ask everybody who appears on the show a set of universal questions. Uh, and one of them is, you know, essentially, what has your emotional experience been uh, in relation to climate change? You've mentioned already anger, fear, uh, hope. What emotions particularly stand out for you in your journey so far? And the follow up question to that is, how have you managed those? I've, I like a lot of people that. <clears throat> Um, engage with this space, and, and I mean this area of trying to talk about climate change or to entice more people to care or to act. I've, I've gone through the gamut, the, the whole gamut of, of emotions. Um, I've found, that's probably a um, more of an insight into to my flaws than anything else, but that, that anger has been motivating. Um, in, in terms of I can get I can get sad, I can get depressed, I can get apathetic. And in some ways, apathy can be a saviour because if you constantly feel the extremes of these emotions, you're going to be cooked. Um, but but for me, it's those moments where I want to flip a table because of something that I've seen or something that's that's happened in the climate space that I'm like, no, I cannot stand by and, and let this happen. Um and I know you could probably look over the last five or six years and, and there'll be, you know, flashpoints for, for things that might have happened in the world or uh, global policy or whatever it is around climate change that has been a, a trigger for at least me personally to dive back into the fray. And, and yes, you're smashing your head against a brick wall, but if you, if you keep going, sometimes you'll break through. I love that idea. Uh of the kind of role and, and function that anger can serve, you know, and anger can have a, it gets a bad reputation, right? And for good reason, because sometimes anger is, it can be problematic. Um, but like all emotions, anger is a, an energy that needs to be channeled in some way. And we just have to find those productive ways of channeling it. And yeah, you're absolutely right. Anger, the role of anger uh, as a motivator, potentially huge in the climate arena. 
Well, and, and then try and, you know, I once had someone that said, you know, it's fine to get butterflies in your stomach as long as you can get those butterflies to fly in formation. Um, and I think it's probably anger is a little bit similar, right? If Target it and use it. Um, yeah. I guess while we're here, I'll jump on the anger's great train. Um, I'm not someone who feels a lot of anger, but as an outside observer, it seems to me that one of the benefits of anger is unlike despair and depression, which sort of spiral inwards and self-reinforce, anger just burns itself out. So it seems mm. to be a much shorter lived reaction to something. I was just going to say, um, regardless of what, you're 100% correct, first of all, and on the depression, is a, it's, it's, a, it's a slow and insidious thing and it, it can take you down and take a long, long time to get back up. Again, in this space, speaking from, from experience, right, I'm not, not talking about clinical depression, but I'm talking about being, being um, at least in some sense, de- depressed by the, the reality of, of the world we're living in. Um, but we touched on it at the start, the idea that if, if you can find other people that are feeling this way, you know, that a problem shared is a problem halved. But, but also, if you can find someone that feels differently, you can find another way to be or another way to react to the situation. And that's something that we talk about themes that came out of the, um, the five-year anniversary. A huge one that was really clear was the power that young people had on how scientists felt. You know, you had your Greta's and your school strikes for climate and your Fridays for futures and these young groups that are pushing for systems change that was really galvanising, it looks like, for the researchers to see that, you know, all of a sudden they're not alone and they've got this, I suppose at one time, this unlikely ally on their side And, and all of a sudden they can see that, it's, it's these young people that they want to keep fighting for and keep pushing for. And that was something that really came up cons- consistently. It was, it was that idea of, you know, there, there are the people that are fighting and there are the people that are, have less life experience but have m- more of this shit future to deal with. Um, and I think that really motivated some of the researchers. Yeah, that's so interesting, isn't it? That You know, we've talked already about the top-down potential of a project like this you know, for early career researchers or for people coming into this as a profession to see these kind of emotional conversations normalized by the people that they aspire to be in 20, 30 years time. How wonderful it is that it works the other way around as well. So that young people have having this galvanizing effect on uh, climate scientists or people who have, uh, you know, who've been in the field for several decades, uh, that it works, it works both ways. There's such a beautiful symmetry to that. And it's it's powerful, and I think the beauty of what the the young people are calling for is it's it's not just saying drive less, fly less, plant a tree. They're talking about systems change and pushing for fundamental change, which I think is so powerful. And that that shift in in um, what people are calling for when they're calling for climate action, particularly young people, to be pushing for that broad sweeping change in policies and in systems. Um, I think that's a huge thing. I think we have time for one more question. So here it is. Can you talk a little bit about what your experiences have been like with people who don't think that climate change is a big issue? Now, I think there's a tendency amongst people who are really concerned about climate change to take everyone who disagrees with them and put them in one group and then demonize them as bad people. And I don't think that's true. There are definitely people out there spreading climate misinformation for commercial purposes, who are doing a bad thing. 
But there are also people who just don't understand the science or who understand the science, but who have a very different risk preference to most of us and who therefore look at the uncertainty around what the impacts will be. And there is uncertainty and come away from that uncertainty with a different idea of what we should do about climate change. Now, I think all of those people need to be convinced that climate change is a huge problem because it is. And there's scientific ways to demonstrate that the uncertainty around the impacts of climate skew much more heavily towards it's worse than we think than it'll be better than we think. But if the scientific communication literature shows us one thing, in addition to what you mentioned, Joe, that fear doesn't change behavior, it's that facts don't change opinions. Unless you are a trusted source of information, delivering facts is most likely to just harden someone's position as opposed to get them to change their mind. So I'm wondering if through this project, you've found that approaching conversations with people who aren't as concerned with climate change from an emotional direction instead of a fact-based direction was, was helpful or helped you have different conversations? Um, I, I think people that fall on the, the other side of the climate fence, let's say, people that might um, either not uh, agree with, with the science behind climate change or not agree on the, the possible actions, they're still a big group. Right. And, and, and exactly as you say, put them all into one back bucket and demonise them is, is counter, counter, counterproductive. For this project, I think I had to realise the, the limitations as well. And I, it couldn't be everything for everyone. Something that I think about in terms of trying to reach a, a broader audience or, or reach the, the people that... Um, are on that other side of that climate conversation. It, it comes back to understanding what matters to them and then crafting your conversation around that and, and finding, because they're passionate, driven people and they, they've, they're human beings. They've got um, the same motivations as we do. They care about, and, and invariably it's, it's about uh, jobs and economic growth or it's, a, it's about putting food on the table for their families. And if that's the most important thing in your world, if that has to be the most important thing in your world because of the situation of where you're living, then no one can hold that against you. Um, but, it, but it becomes about trying to understand those motivations for those viewpoints and for those standpoints and then unpacking it from there. Okay, finding out what... Okay, so a uh, perfect example is... Not a, not a climate one, but if you're a if you're a coastal fisherman, the more fish that you catch, the more food that you're putting on the table uh, for your family, or the more money you're bringing in to to further your family's position in the world, you do not give two shits about the risk of overfishing and the long term repercussions. Because if you stop fishing now, your family dies. Um, in the same way, if you're a if you're a coal mining family and that's all you've ever known, and you're in a small town um, on the coast of absolutely nowhere, uh, digging up iron ore or digging up coal, if you stop doing that, it's completely understandable that, that your viewpoint's like the fisherman. I stopped doing my job, I stopped getting paid, and what are my family going to do? Okay, so you're exactly right. It's not about demonising those people, but it takes more time, more nuance, and, and 
a greater investment, I think, in relationship building and rapport building and understanding each other to then be able to pick apart, well, what are the drivers about why you're feeling that way? And what picture can we paint in terms of climate change and the drivers there to make this relevant to you so that we can, um, you know, come up with a solution? And and so often that the the argument loses any nuance when you start to to get angry and demonise people, and it needs to come from a place of understanding. Having said that, that bucket of people on the other side of the climate fence, yes, it's a really really broad one. You are going to get haters, you are going to get trolls, and you are going to get your name dragged across the the floor, or you know, you are going to get personally victimised or personally attacked for speaking about climate change in the way you do. Um, and I think the big challenge there too is that it's, it's all online and we already know how much of a vitriolic place the internet can be. Um, and, and so from a personal perspective and for a number of the researchers that have contributed to the project, they have been personally attacked. And they've been personally attacked in in you know, some quite prominent news sources, albeit for, on, on the right, you know. Um, and and that's another risk that people really need to consider if they are going to put their faces forward and their voices forward to contribute. And, and I really do think that that could be something that stops people having this conversation and stops people contributing because of the risk to reputation or the risk of personal attacks. Um, yeah, it's a hard one. Sorry, guys, I get a little bit I get a little bit fired up and I go off on <laughs> tangents. I hope I hope that was it's been useful. No, Joe, it's been super useful. I'm just sad that we have to end the episode now that we've got you all fired up. For our listeners, stick around. Pat and I are going to do a quick 10-minute summary at the end of the episode. But before then, Joe, thank you so much for speaking with us today. It's been a wonderful start to what I hope is going to be a great first season. And best of luck with all of your projects going forward. Thanks for, for chatting with me. I, I'm genuinely, it's so nice to be able to connect with people that are um, still got the fire, you know, still still passionate and trying stuff in different ways. So, yeah, more power to you. Right. End of the first episode. It's time for the first outro. What we're going to do is at the end of every episode, I'm going to shut up and we're going to let our resident clinical psychologist talk for a couple of minutes about the core mental health management strategies or themes that were discussed in the episode. And we're going to do this because we know that some of you out there are anal retentive A-type personalities like myself who just want to get right to the so what. And if that describes you, then you can skip to the last 10, 15 minutes of any episode and get the key takeaways. Uh, We will do our best to present them in a concise and useful form, although it may not end up being uh, as concise as it possibly could be. So with that said, my first question. Joe, both in his personal experience and in the letters he received, talked about just a huge range of emotions. 
how do you, I have to imagine when you're dealing with something that makes you feel 17 different things at once, a first step is to try and unravel what it is that you're actually feeling. Yeah. How do you go about figuring out what you're feeling when you're dealing with something that's emotionally complex? Is there a standard practice for that? Pause thinking about climate for a minute and just think about our emotional experience, right? And um, first thing we have to, first thing, the foundation we should lay for this series is that we're not going to talk about good emotions and bad emotions. We're not going to talk about positive emotions or negative emotions. Uh, emotions just are, right? They just, they, they just exist. And, and actually we have when they're there, we have surprisingly little control over them. <laughs> not, to, not to add to the list of things at the beginning of the episode that you, t- you kind of reminded us there's, we don't have control over in our lives. Um, but sometimes the, the, the more we try to fight against the emotions we're experiencing, the harder it is. And, you know, now zooming into the climate question, yeah, it's, it brings up all kinds of different feelings at all kinds of different times. And like, sometimes you can delineate them and be able to label them in your mind, like, oh, this makes me feel really angry, or oh, this, I'm really worried about this. Sometimes they might be happening all at the same time. So you, you have kind of essentially a soup of, of feelings. And sometimes you might not necessarily be, be experiencing them as a mental phenomenon, but you might be feeling them in the body, or you might be feeling just kind of agitated or, you know, so, and when all these emotions combine, we kind of use words like hijacked, right, or overwhelmed, or something like that, that just describes this kind of whole body and mind sort of paralysis and that's oftentimes when people's kind of climate emotions if we can call them that like really come to the fore is when that concoction just leads to just overwhelm and and a sort of emotional overheating you know but one of the other things that we started talking about it with joe already is actually some of these emotions are really quite constructive. In fact, possibly all of them have a potential to be constructive. We talked about this with Joe in the context of anger, right? Like anger as a motivator, anger as as an intense, short-lived kind of form of energy that can really rally us. We just need to make sure, I love that quote that he said, it's okay to have butterflies in the stomach, you just need to make sure they fly in formation. Like I love that idea. So we're not talking about how to experience emotion A, but not emotion B. We're talking about how to better understand the emotions we experience and see them as a kind of energy, like a waveform um, that we can then apply to how we interact with and engage with the climate crisis, right? So I suppose one of the helpful things to say is we have, when we've asked people, I say we, you know, the, the collective we of psychologists and researchers how does the, does thinking about the, cri- the climate crisis make you feel any of the following? Usually the most commonly experienced emotions that people are able to identify are things like fear, uh, guilt, anger, but also things like motivation and hope uh, and connection. One of the key things that I think I'm fairly certain is going to come up in this series is the value of sharing your experience, is the value of connecting with other people and about hearing other people's stories as well from a climate emotions perspective. That's one of the reasons I loved Is This How You Feel so much as a project is because you can look at a page and say, okay, actually this is, yeah, I feel that way as well. Or actually I don't, I don't think I necessarily associate with that emotion, but yeah, really this, this really resonates with me. So 
So being able to kind of learn from each other's experiences is really, is really helpful because yeah, it is, it is hard to sit down, close your eyes, tune into your experience and say, okay, what are the five emotions that I'm experiencing right now? Um, it's amazing that as humans, we've been able to give emotions words at all, <laughs> you know, because they're so complex and overlapping, you know. Okay, let me play this back to you to make sure I understood. So first you're saying one of the wonderful things about being a human being is if you're struggling with something, you're probably not the first person to have ever struggled with it. So if you have something that is emotionally complex, one of the ways to unravel it is find people who have experienced a similar problem and learn from them. Is there also a role for speaking about your problem, even if you don't have much to say at the start? And the reason I ask this is I'm aware there's a school of thought amongst therapists where one of the ways to treat your patients is not to, to coach them, but to provide them a space to speak. And through speaking, they might make discoveries about themselves that they, they, didn't, they weren't aware of uh, when they started. Yeah, absolutely. And these kinds of um, opportunities or platforms or um, have been increasing, increasing, increasing over, over the past few years. Uh, so I do a lot of work with businesses and schools trying to establish a kind of infrastructure of climate well-being, let's say, particularly if they're involved in sustainability or you know, working with the sustainability teams in businesses or sustainability teams in schools. And one of the most kind of needed and necessary and popular building blocks, if you like, of that infrastructure are very unstructured kind of conversations within teams or groups of people about how, about how they're feeling. And nothing more, it doesn't need to be any more structured or complicated than that. And you can just listen, like you can totally be a wallflower in these kind of situations and say, actually, I'm here to just understand my own emotions. I can't really put words to them yet, but I'm kind of here to learn. Um, and I think these, yeah, this, this will come up as a theme. I have no doubt about it as the, as the season goes on. Maybe even listening to the episodes of this podcast might be helpful. Exactly. Exactly. There's so much, so much wisdom, not from me, but no, from the people, from you know, <laughs> uh, not from the people we're interviewing. I can't wait. This brings up two quick questions, and then I think we should end the episode. So you've mentioned the role of learning from others' experiences and of speaking about your own. Does, is there a role for something like journaling? And I know that at least 30% of the people listening to this just rolled their eyes because <laughs> yep. saying journaling is like, dear diary. Uh, but I have found... Yeah. But, there's, but there's, there's 70% who probably went, ah, oh, I do that already. Yeah. I mean, look at a group of people, climate scientists, who are given the, op- the opportunity to, sh- to journal, to just write in a very free form way about how they're feeling and then send it to a science communication slash art exhibit and that felt like a slightly public but nonetheless journaling exercise completely um so yeah i know you're you're onto a winner definitely and then my big question so so the so the big tool that we've identified is share even if you don't have a lot to share 
maybe you'll discover more through the sharing process. How do you have those conversations if you're not someone that regularly does it? Because to be, so it can be, I think, embarrassing to admit that you're scared of anything, much less climate change. I think for reasons that we won't get into now, because that's a whole other episode in and of itself. (laughs) To say to someone right now, I'm scared, I'm genuinely scared of climate change. It keeps me up at night. I think a lot of people would feel really dumb saying that. It feels like it's something that you shouldn't be afraid of, even though they're completely legitimate reasons to be afraid, which we're going to talk about. Mm. Um, Or maybe you are someone, this is something that I've noticed as I've gotten older, the more senior you become in both your life and your profession and the more accomplished you become, I think the harder it is to admit that you are wrong or scared or you know, you're trying to maintain this persona of I always, I always have everything together. And um, so I think there's lots of reasons that people struggle to have conversations about emotions that they can perceive to be a, a embarrassing. Um, and so if you're someone who's not a therapist, you're not practiced in having these conversations, but you want to have them with someone in your workplace or in your personal life or whatever, how do you do that effectively without it being just excruciatingly uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, I mean and you're right there's a for sure there's a there's an issue a really sort of systemic issue of of kind of it's an organizational problem really the higher the higher you are the more senior you are in, in any sort of organizational structure the harder it then feels to kind of step outside of that and I think it's fair to say you know, I've spoken with a lot of business leaders and it's fair to say part of that is because they they want to they want to protect the well-being of the people you know that 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 uh, are a part of their team sometimes people are, are afraid of sort of opening Pandora's box and saying actually I am I the right person to start this conversation you know I don't feel skilled enough to have these conversations so it's better just to leave the lid closed and also you know, you mentioned this feeling of embarrassment. Like, I feel frightened of this, but I'm not, I'm looking around, I'm looking around the boardroom, I'm looking around the office, I'm, you know, among among my friends. I don't think anyone else is really feeling this way. And that, that speaks to a wider problem around like our collective uh, understanding of climate change and our sort of collective efficacy, right? Our feeling of, like, are we all in this together? Are we all experiencing this as an, as an emotional thing? And there was this great study in uh, America and in the USA last year that asked people, how afraid are you of climate change? And something like 41% said, very. And then it asked, and how frightened do you think the people around you are about climate change? And they estimated that only 14% of the people around them said they were, they were very frightened, right? Mm-hmm. So there's this kind of, kind of collective sense that I'm feeling this, but I don't think anyone else around me is. And for sure, that gets in the way of people feeling confident to speak up I mean, with their friends, speak up at work. You know, I speak to so many people, individuals, you know, in therapy who say, I don't, I don't think anyone else around me is really feeling this. But statistically, we know that isn't the case. You know, there's such high levels of 
climate-related distress, you know, when we'll we'll cover these throughout the season, you know, we're going to be interviewing some of the people who have conducted these studies and around the world. And what we can basically say is the vast majority of people are uh, freaking out, you know, and and who are experiencing this as as an emotional thing. And yet we can still have that feeling of like, but, but I feel, I feel a bit embarrassed to sort of say this is uh, this is something that's troubling me. And so yeah, I think just starting to have conversations with people that you think you know you can start you can start by asking Joe's question. You know how you, how are you feeling about this? And just seeing what other people say. Connect with those forums. Connect with those. You know, join those climate cafes. And I I guarantee there'll be plenty of people who respond by saying, yeah, you know what, I feel that way too. Or perhaps I don't feel that exact combination, that exact constellation of emotions, but this is how I experience it emotionally. Okay, so I'm hearing two things. One, there's value in creating a space where the purpose of being there is having these conversations. Like sometimes when we struggle to have difficult conversations, it feels, it is difficult because we feel like it's not appropriate to raise that topic at this time or we don't have a good reason to bring up a topic. So if you have a event or um, you know a group of people where you've gathered them together for the express purpose of having these conversations, that might help you get past that initial barrier of, oh, I don't know when the right time is to raise this topic. The second thing I heard was start small. And I guess this is like the holy grail of <laughs> mental health management, which is incremental exposure, right? Take a difficult task, break it down into the smallest individual step you can take and do that first and do that a lot. And then soon you'll find that 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 first tiny step is easy. And then you take the next tiny step and you keep working that way until you've you've conquered the problem. And so maybe like you said, an easy first step is asking someone else how they feel. And that sort of relieves you of the responsibility of having to start sharing intimate, embarrassing, or emotions you perceive to be embarrassing uh, right right off the bat. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Or, or, you know, starting with something that that is triggering f- for you from a climate perspective and just see what people come back with. You know, I for me, uh, and I can't watch David Attenborough you know, document nature documentaries anymore. Uh, because it just, I have this just overwhelming kind of grief response and like anger at, at the, the loss of habitat and ecosystems and all that kind of stuff. Um, and when I say that to people, actually, I just can't watch those shows anymore. In vast majority of people say, yeah, I find it, I find that really hard as well. I thought that was just me. Like I, we're supposed to, we're supposed to love watching these shows. We're supposed to love, you know, and these shows were when we were kids generally pretty peaceful, relaxing, you know, interactions with nature. And now, and now they're not. And I lost count of the amount of people that came back and said, yeah, actually, I can't, I find that really hard as well. And there you go. That's the, that's like the entrance into the conversation. And I think that is the perfect place to end our very first episode. Should we ruin it with a shameless plug? Because <laughs> one of the other things our listeners could do while they wait for the next episode is read your book. They could try reading that book, yeah, if they wanted to. They can listen to it now as well. It's on audiobook. Well, if someone's having difficulties falling asleep, where could they go to find it? Oh, well, it's called Turn the Tide on Climate Anxiety. They can find it. They can find it hopefully anywhere. Uh, and they can listen to it on all the usual um, 
Audible and and all the other platforms. We're not uh, we're not sponsored by Audible, so Jeff Bezos, you're welcome for the free advertising. Uh, all right, let's play Orlando's excellent outro. Yeah. Uh, for anyone interested, Orlando Hagenbottom, also known by his alias, totally enormous extinct dinosaurs, very kindly let us use uh, some of the music that he's written for the intro and outro of this podcast. Go check out his stuff. It is fantastic. And we will see you back here next week for episode two with one of the leaders of the youth activism organization in the global south, Mitzi Janelle Tan.